Welcome to Talking in Stations, a podcast about EVE Online. I am your host, Madderall. Today, we're going to visit with the executive producer of EVE Online. We'll call her CCP Siegel and stay with uh, game names. She is moving on from CCP within the next few weeks. And we're going to talk with her and she's going to meet some of the people during the show and after the show to answer questions and tell us about herself and her new adventures and things like that. We're very much looking forward to that. It'll be the first time that we've had CCP Siegel on the show. We're going to start with some news and she'll be on a little bit later, about a half hour from now. But first, let's do some introductions and then get to our first guest, Asher Elias, in just a second. First, we want to say hi to Ashtarathi. Greetings, fellow Empyreans. I am Ashrathi, commander of FedUp. Awesome. And Carneros. Good morning, everyone. I'm uh, Carneros, CEO of The Bastion. Great. All right. Well, let's get started with Asher Elias. How are you doing, Asher? Uh, good. Good. I'm tired. I stayed up late doing some Fozzie stuff, so I, uh, and I didn't get a full night, but I'm here for you, no matter all, because I love you. You're awesome, man. I'm a huge fan of the show that you do, Asher Hour. It's a podcast too. And even if you haven't done one in a while, which you haven't, which I'm upset about, you can go back to that library and listen to it. These are very evergreen podcasts. You can learn a lot about how to fly in EVE and even the things that FCs have to worry about. Uh, Listen, you can have a campaign against darkness or a podcast, but you can't have both. (laughs) All right. Well, We're lucky we have that to report. So the campaign up north against uh, Darkness and Guardians of the Galaxy Coalition, um, you guys are taking on, where is it? Pure Blind and where? Uh, That's, I mean, that's where we're based out of. I think actually technically our staging is in Fade, NPC Fade. So, but it's all in that sort of Declan, Pure Blind, Fade area that all runs together. So what led up to this, uh, these events? Take, take us take us through it from the beginning. Well, we were bored. First, there was boredom. And you decided uh, we need to do something, right? Yeah, that's pretty much uh, that's pretty much the long and short of it. Like, you know, there's uh there was no um uh you know grand plan or um there's been some sort of like uh narrative from darkness about how this is the the prelude to invasion everyone get in fleet we need to shut it down and all this stuff and you know we just got bored okay so you got bored you took some uh what are called sigs up there and those are special interest groups yeah yeah it's you know and other groups in you know and uh um other alliances, uh, although I think Test has really adopted the SIG model, but other than that, um, people really segregate themselves by corps. So you might do a corp deployment or, um, you know, something like that. But in 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 uh, Imperium, you can, uh, anyone can join a SIG or a squad, which is our sort of our groups. And they're more like elective groups. Like you're interested in this time zone and doing this thing, join this group. So just uh, like uh, some of the stakes, like uh, Black Ops and Reavers um, went up there. And then more recently, uh, Space Violence has joined. It's a really good way to make friends if you've joined a massive group and uh, or if you're t- temporarily flying at a time when not a lot of people from your corporation are flying. So you have other people to hang out with. It's also a meritocratic, which is nice um, when... Uh, 
when you look at the success of other, you know, great space tribes like the Mongols, um, they did the same thing. The Mongols? I haven't heard of them in a year. Are you talking about the real ones? Yeah, yeah, yeah. History of the well, In essence, it allows you to compartmentalize your efforts, right? So people can effectively self-report, I am interested in doing black ops. I am interested in doing these things, and therefore I will live to those standards. One of the problems that we run into is that it's like, well, we want all of our people to have this much readiness, but we also have people who may or may not even care about large fleet flights or whatever, because in faction warfare, you know, maybe somebody just wants to do plex. So making it so that like an individual can say, no, I want to be held to this higher standard. I'm part of this larger group. Like that, I, it totally makes sense to me why you would do it that way. Let me ask you a question before, before you go on here, Matt, all this is unrelated to what you've discussed with me so far. Mm-hmm. Are you going to let the general public ask Siegel questions? Uh, yes, but it's moderated. What do you mean by that? Uh, they will X up, and then I will unmute them. They can ask their question, and then I will mute them up again. You, you but know I'll what? hover over them. You know what, Matterall? You have a lot more faith in humanity than I do, and I, <laughs> I appreciate you for that. That's why I'm here, because you're a nice guy, and I am not. I don't believe that'll work. I am worried. Amen. Amen. Well, listen, we last time, this is how well it worked. We had Fozzie here, and we left the channel completely open and killer B was like, you're going to have a huge disaster. And I said, well, let's do it until it goes off the rails. Then we'll lock it down. It never went off the rails. One guy got aggressive at first and then he realized, Oh, that's not the tone of the place and calmed down. And I was really impressed. Hey, you know, there was a thread uh, when it was announced that, you know, she was moving on and saying, you know, uh, you could be the executive producer of Eve online. Uh, You know, what would you do? And in the thread, I read it through, and I likened it to asking a soybean farmer, uh, what would he do if he was president of the United States, and all his answers relating to soybeans. Uh, the general EVE Online player is, is EVE Online player is grossly unequipped to become an executive producer for EVE Online. It, it was it was eye opening. Oh yeah, I actually made that joke because some people even said that to me, like, oh, you should try. And I'm like, yeah. And then everybody can watch how poorly I manage people, you know, like in real life. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that people will r- rise up to the occasion. I kind of have faith in people. And when they make a mis- when they decide they are more important than everybody else, then they get blocked. And uh, that's that. And people understand. One time we made a mistake because we had the battle of nine tack four and there was 10 to 11,000 people watching us live. And I was kind of uh, allowing people to come in, but uh, the producer did too, uh, who did a great job by the way. And he grabbed somebody that had a CCP in front of their name and he blurted out some unfortunate stuff, uh, but he was quickly like, you know, thrown out. And then it became a, all right, don't let anybody in unless I look at him and okay him because I've been at this a while and you can kind of sniff out. well, you know what? I'm not going to even say it, but it was the, a little. It was a little weird when you grabbed CCP Wiener four twenty sixty nine. That was the most <laughs> information. That wasn't it. Four twenty no. yellow flag. Yeah, <laughs> no, wasn't it? No, because anybody with the name CCP kind of has to be known. You don't just let in any CCP here because you know who that is, and that's what happened. Because uh, we know the ones that usually communicate with the community and stuff. So. But that was the only time I saw some bad happen. It happened in front of 10,000 people, which is a real mistake. But that's what happens when you, when you do this kind of stuff. 
But I'm mostly impressed because, again, most of the time, everybody's really cool. One uh, of the big rules great. on Wikipedia, it says assume good faith, you know, whenever you're discussing edits or something. And I've always thought that was a good rule. And, and you're doing that in real life. So I commend you for it. Well, thanks. The last thing on that is that I honestly think that at first, because I work in technology, first you kind of lay down a policy saying, don't do this. Um, this is not something we allow. And then when somebody violates that, then you lock the technology down, but not the other way around. Like I, I subscribe to that sort of a thing with certain exceptions, of course. Um, but you know, people want to know about, uh, although we've covered it the last two shows, Asher, you've been up there, you've been punching holes in the Guardians of the Galaxies. It's not lost on us that they are your, the Imperium's, say, secondary rival as far as uh, people who are building kind of an empire. Like DRF is totally not doing it. Uh, there looks like they're collapsing. But Guardians of the Galaxies or Darkness um, has basically had a lot of ratting going on or did until you guys interrupted it. That figure in at all to the excursions or did you just feel like picking on people who took your old spot? You mean like, was there a plan to disrupt them economically? You know, is that, is that a consideration? Yeah. Not for me, you know, um, once we were up there and like, you know, someone like Aerith or Weasley or saw the results, they were like, Oh wow, this is, this is good stuff. Keep yeah, it we'll up. pay for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. You know, I'm, I'm often going to them with my hand out, you know, please, sir, may I have some more? <laughs> and, and generally I get no more, but you know, when you show the results, they're like, Oh, they rub a couple of pennies together for me every now and then. Um, how, how does that work for an FC? You're an FC. That doesn't mean you control the budgets of these fleets, right? No, no. I, I mean, I have like you know, access to some uh, some money, like if I need it. But um, generally, I just just say, hey, I'm going to go and spend this much money. Can I get it? Like, I'll say, you know, for this month, can I can I have? You know, I don't even have a number, but you know, I'll just say this many billionaires. I want to spend this much. Uh, and they'll be like, all right, that's fine. And then just send it to me. And I put it in the, the corp that I use to manage it. And, uh, and that's it. Like it, it's pretty, it's pretty simple. They make it easy. Yeah. Um, and then some groups, like some SIGs and squads, they, they ask for a monthly budget. Um, so they'll be like, you know, can I get 5 billion or 10 billion a month? Um, so not a ton, but you know, enough that you can offer some incentives and do some fun stuff. Uh, but I do it on a campaign basis, so I don't, I don't, you know, when we're not doing anything, I don't ask for any money. But when we are, I say, you know, I want this much money for the month, and I'll, I'll you know, and they don't like, they don't really micromanage me. They don't look through the wallet and say, what did you buy with this, you know, tennisk? <laughs> well, I think the way I've, I've noticed it happen um, is that you guys say, yeah, we got got bored guys, just like you said, so we're going to take them and do stuff with them through these SIGs. So you don't have to do it through a corp. You don't have to do it through you know, the friends of a fleet or whatever. It's right. actually kind of organized. You go up there and you play around and you lose stuff. And so they want to keep those prices low. So you guys can only fly certain doctrines. You show success and they say, hmm, you're doing stuff. And actually it's in our political interest. So we'll up your budget. And now you can fly battleships. Is that kind of how it works? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I guess so. I don't really have like, like it's not like I want to fly this doctrine. Can I get the money for that? Like they leave that up to me. They don't, you know. They don't manage that. Okay. I, 
I would hope that the that the decision was more controlled about like what is needed, right? So you get a certain response. It's like, well, we need this tool to counter what they're doing, and yeah. so then you get that. That that's what it is. Like like really, the only time I would I would like ask for you know um, funding would be like if we wanted to say like, oh guys, I want to I want to pre-purchase you know forty dreadnoughts or something, you know, can I get the money for that? Uh, and I've done that before. They're like, sure, yeah, here's the money. And then we we killed five titans with them. So like, <laughs> nice return on they investment. Were, yeah, exactly. They were they were very pleased with that investment. Uh, same thing when um, when we uh, when we killed those five titans, uh, you know, uh, initiative came, uh, snuff came, fed up came. Like you know, there were a lot of people who were like, yeah, hey, let's kill some titans. And we uh, we sent for every every dread who died that wasn't uh, in the imperium. We sent them like a billion isk or a billion and a half isk. I don't remember, but we sent every every group, even though we didn't promise them anything. But they just showed up for the kills. But we still paid them for the dreads that they lost because we're like, yeah, we appreciate you helping us out, and we want to help you out. Oh, all right. I think if you're, I think you're uh, uh, imagining more of a big nefarious strategic plan than is sometimes present. Yeah, you get yeah. a combination of board guys. You get a certain amount of budget. You get an obligation to feel like you need to provide some content for them. And then at the same time, you got an opportunistic power vacuum caused by a pandemic horde pulling out of the area and moving somewhere else. Um, well, I would say that the last part doesn't actually factor into it because when we came up here, horde was very much entrenched and had not planned on leaving. Oh, okay. Well, the, some of the later groups, that was part of yeah. Wait, the Horde leaving, how badly or, I mean, how did that change things? Well, so when Horde was here, generally the, when we'd fight, we'd be outnumbered four times or five times. Um, so we'd fight five to one or four to one. You know, we were we were getting, uh, you know, 55 in fleet and they would show up with 250. And then if we herfed, we would get maybe 80 in fleet, but they would counter herf and they would show up with 400. Explain, so, explain herf real quick. You know, just just uh, hyped it. If we told people to come, you know, we we yeah. prepaid. Uh, they would do the same thing because they would see it, and then they would come. You know, they would uh, uh, show up with you know 400 people. Um, and um, by and large, we still won those fights, um, especially early on. They were very disorganized, um, but Horde provided um, so many bodies. You know, and, and it's 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 like it's like you know, major space fights writ small, uh, there becomes a point where more people, you know, is more valuable than anything else. So um, we always had to pick and choose our spots. We still do, but um, it, it was even more so when Horde was here. When they left, it, uh, it was uh, it was a really bad for GOTG. GOTG, uh, now at the time, I don't think we realized it, but GOTG was really relying on Horde. And I don't know, I don't know, I don't think they believed it, and I don't think Horde knew it, but it's become obvious in retrospect. Yeah. One thing that we observed, at least, was that Horde wasn't highly committed to that area. They were off doing, they had, they were in multiple places. And so, like, because we had been skirmishing with Horde for quite some time, even before the Wait, Imperium showed up. Who is we? Just explain that real quick. Sorry. Uh, fed up uh, in Galmilistan. So, you know, so we... Faction warfare we, Galente side, okay. Correct. We took some space in uh, in 
Cloudering, specifically fed up is in the uh, Asalot constellation. And uh, yeah, so we fought with some of the smaller forces of GOTG and Horde prior to the Imperium showing up. Once the Imperium showed up, they seemed to be far too busy to be worrying about us anymore, you, which you got that nice. sort of Mixalot space, huh? Yes, yes. Um, one thing that I do really miss about Horde is that they it, it was it was on demand dropping or or killing ratters like because they had such a small pocket of space they really believed in density they ratted in like essentially five systems so um when we first got there there was always a horde carrier to kill and um they eventually stopped using carriers essentially but there would still always be 500 you know vnis like every anom so you could just be like oh i'm bored let's go murder 30 vnis while their hyper stabbers chase us around which was really fun actually um i, I you know it, it, it gave me a good understanding of why people hunt in delve because it's such a target rich environment and you can't mess up well it certainly provided a lot of uh, good battles i've heard i don't know if i've heard it on both sides but certainly uh, the imperium saying like oh these are great fights so i think i haven't heard it on both sides yeah, I don't know. You know, I I don't want to I don't want to overestimate our our impact on Horde. Like it, it it is nice that we were we were really hitting their their space and their ratting very hard, and they moved on. Um, and obviously from a propaganda perspective, you'd be like, "Yep, that was 100% me. I did everything." Um, and, 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 but from a you know in a realist mode, I don't think we did everything. But I certainly think that we had a, you know an impact on their thinking about saying, "Hey, we could use some better space than this, where we can spread it a little bit more, where we aren't able to be you know penned into this tiny little pocket, and maybe where we don't have to defend some incompetent allies every day who who don't show up in the right doctrines and and do the wrong things." Yeah, I I sincerely yeah. I think that like Horde had multiple holdings and then. You know, like they were holding that one, but they weren't, weren't really sure how much they wanted to be committed to it. And then you guys showed up and, and kind of decided it for them. I would say that that's how it played out. Well, in any case, it looks like the expeditions have kind of broke open into what I call a full-scale invasion, which clearly is not a full-scale invasion. I heard you know. say that last weekend, and yeah. my eyes violently rolled into the back of my head. <laughs> I think, like a slot machine? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, the noises and everything. <laughs> cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. Exactly. Yeah. And then maybe, the steam came out of your see ears. Maybe what a full-scale inv invasion looks like, so that way we have a sense of scale. No one well, wants a full-scale invasion. Like, that would be yeah. extremely boring. Well, you know, we've seen full-scale collision of the North and the South, and we have a stalemate, right? That's what happened in 9 Tech 4. So, right, we already had uh, the preview of that particular script. Like, who wants that? Yeah, that was like a week of buildup for a, a huge tie-dye fest that kind of broke the server and then people, you know, had to march themselves home. Not yeah. fun. But what I meant by full-scale invasion is, and I should have selected my words a bit more carefully than full-scale invasion, but at a certain point, there's a tipping point. This happened when we were watching uh, the casino war in its early moments, right? Like there was movements going on and, and that's when actually talking in stations started. And that was two years ago. They were about the two year anniversary of the casino war. And we could see movement of troops going and nobody was saying, you know, this is going to happen. Maybe they were behind the scenes, but not in public. Well, right. They were intentionally trying to obfuscate what the, the plan was, I think at that point. 
Oh, were they really? They were trying to, nobody was admitting to it and they were all saying, yeah, we're just doing something different. Don't worry about it. Well, certainly like and the timescale and this is, is sort of, you know, going to get, uh, getting sort of a little muddled in my memory, but mm-hmm. there was a point and I don't remember exactly when that point was, but there was a point when we had Intel that was basically, you know, a hundred percent solid that, that this was an invasion and for another month or two at least publicly these dudes would be like we would say it's an invasion they'd be like goons are so dumb you know like they think this is an invasion they're idiots typical goonies Matani's men yeah because because it it, didn't the fountain war effectively start the same way where test was quote just having fun and then when they met with real resistance they were like okay let's do this and then it just became an invasion well i think i mean i think that half the time it's like oh we you know we were kind of poking around doing an excursion an expedition and then it becomes like oh well you know this could be an invasion maybe we should consider an invasion or people see your success and say hey i'd like to help you with this invasion like well i didn't have one but maybe i do now yeah let me clarify something ashtarathi the uh about fountain war what you had is an interesting situation there where uh Let's go back even further in Fountain War. There was the Thunderdome where Test and Nelly Segunda and AAA and other groups were kind of fighting it out. And it was kind of fun to fight. It was called Good Fights. That's where the good fight culture actually started, if I can, if I remember that correctly. And it was a slap fight, right? You're just kind of horsing around, slapping each other. And then somebody gets mad because they get beat too hard or something. And so then it becomes a real fight. And so that happened in Thunderdome. Fast forward a few months later, after Nelly Segunda is crushed and thrown out into faction warfare, then uh, the same thing happens between the border of the CFC at the time and uh, Fountain, which was then run by Test, which was huge at the time, second only to Goonswarm, I think, or maybe even surpassed it. And what you had was PL, NC, and Goonswarm, because all these FCs knew each other, and they were feeding on the little guy, Test, at the time. They were kind of like the, the brave or the horde of the era. And it got to be, again, too harsh and so Test got really burned out and angry. Uh, and that's right before all this political stuff happened in Montolio that created the pressure to end the moon changes, right? Because there's a lot of richness coming into Fountain that allowed that conflict to actually come to a breaking point and start. So it was, it was excursionary at the top of it, but there was definitely a declaration of war that Matani came out and said, we're marching in the fountain because they have moons and we want them. Yeah, and that he, was what was like. he said like that he actually had in his uh, State of the Union, uh, you know, it was basically, you know, I'm not going to spin this as some sort of grand war for ideology or whatever. We need money. We need space. Like, that's what he said in the in the whole yeah. thing. It, you know, it was very much prefaced by ep- economics. And, um, you know, I was involved behind the scenes back then. So I only know what, what was said publicly. But. That was that was very much what the public front was. What we want money. Yeah, my, he was out my, in the open about it. The point that I'm making is is that there's usually this step. The, there's this multiple step process where it's like we're just going to try to mess with these people. But if the response is significant enough, then we will escalate because you know it, it's not like in, the Imperium is going to go to the GOTG and then GOTG is going to punch back on the Imperium and then the Imperium are just going to go. Oh well, we got killed. We're going to go home. No, you're you're going to get mad and you're going to bring more. And so that's no, 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 no. I'm sorry to contradict you. Let me push back a little bit because that's what happened in Fountain War versus NC. When NC was in Delve, we incursioned into to Fountain, and they punched back, and we essentially went away twice. Fair enough. 
Yeah, that uh, happens. That happens pretty frequently. It's it, it, it's the weakness you show against these incursions that sometimes snowballs it or shuts it down. Um, but, bad. And you mentioned you mentioned the uh, full scale invasion, and the reality is those aren't as fun as they sound. But I will say that when the Matani gives one of those roaring uh, as state of the Gunian speeches and everyone gets together to march off to war. It is a hell of a lot of fun. It is really exciting. Uh, you're, everyone gets wound up for it. It's, it's a great feeling. It's uh, good positive energy. Like it's it wears off later, but yeah, <laughs> it hurts later. Well, the, the, Go ahead. The, the point that I'm trying to get to, and Astrothi brought it up, and that's exactly where I wanted to go with this conversation is, have things changed? Because before you used to have war declarations and you put things on the line, much like Triumvirate did when they decided they were going to attack FCON until the death, they put a lot on the line at that point. They say, we're going to attack these guys until we die or they die. And at that point, you're in it. But what we're seeing from you guys and other groups is these excursions that are not invasions, they're just trying to have fun, and then they're producing stuff. And then it's like, oh, okay, well, this is fun. Let's see if we can dislodge them from their sob. And that's when I said, this is an invasion. It looks like they're horsing around, but I think they're bringing up some stuff that's going to try to dislodge their sovereignty. And that, to me, is an invasion. Well, you said dislodge is the right word because, I mean, you, you know, you talked about how this, there was a war in Fountain that wasn't ideological. It was economical, right? Like, you need, you, Mitani says, we need moons, we need money, we need space. Um, you don't need that currently, right? Like, there's no, there's no impetus for goons to spread out. And so when you say dislodge like if we dislodged utg like out of their space would be would we have you know pop a champagne cork yeah yeah we definitely would it'd be really funny but uh we don't you know you know th that would be it we wouldn't be like all right and now we're going to move in because we don't have any desire it would be a negative for us to do that right so there's no economic impetus for for a, like this full-scale invasion like that that you may want to see Certainly, as like an Eve journalist, that's that's a much more interesting time. But you're you're not going to get your wish if that is it, because it, no one wants the space. Like you know, you would need someone to install. Like if you wanted to do that, even, and and who is that? Like that group doesn't exist. Oh, that's a good point. Uh, you need to install somebody to to take up that space, or it creates a vacuum that they can kind of come right back into, and then it was a waste of effort. Hmm. Interesting. Well, you know, you have uh, people like fed up, right? Aren't aren't you guys allied? Uh, yeah, hey, 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 Ashton, do you want to move in immediately next to uh, NC dot Superfleet? You'd also be relatively close to PLs. Oh yeah, that sounds fantastic. <laughs> Especially because you're um, right now. How, how's it going with your personal conflict there, uh, Ashton? Can you well, explain that a little bit? Yeah, so after the Imperium came in, that kind of left this vacuum because GOTG and, you know, their dudes stopped harassing us nearly as much, uh, as I pointed out earlier. But what unfortunately happened was it made it so that Tissue kind of saw an opportunity. And so for the last month, they have been pretty uh, pushing onto us as hard as they possibly can through every single uh, tool that they have at their disposal. Um, and so they've been putting pretty high pressure. And then most recently, uh, GOTG hired Black Legion to help them out, if I remember correctly. But I guess uh, the, you guys in the Imperium aren't doing a good enough job putting on pressure or something because ELO is finding a lot of time to come and help Tissue 
uh, with with their timers and picking on us. So we're still fighting back, but now we're you know we're we're Gal Milistan and we're fighting against supers and stuff, but we're still hanging in there. Yeah, I have no interest in fighting Elo. You know, if you get paid to do something, you shouldn't enjoy it. You should. Either, I, I mean, I, take. I don't know if I really wanted to be fighting Elo, but it was fun to fight and and win the other day. Um, so you know, we had one big fight. They they refed our Fortizar, so we uh, pulled together all of Galmilistan and you blooped him. You blooped him. Yeah, we we blobbed him. But uh, they're they're back. They just uh, refed, I think, two more timers, and they keep they keep pushing on us. So we're gonna keep fighting back. We're hoping to uh, hold it until, obviously, uh, the next patch because you've got the station changeover, the outpost changeover, and then also uh, the change to stabs in faction warfare. So hopefully that'll be a good time to refocus back on faction warfare. But in the meantime, we're in full fledged like being sieged mode. I'm just so sick of these faction warfare guys, just blobbing every fleet they see and just ruining the fights. Like that's, that's the scourge of Eve right now. It's, it's funny because like literally two months ago or a month ago, I think it was somebody from GOTG was saying only scrubs put their mains in faction warfare and how scrubby we all are. And then all of a sudden now we're the blobbers to the, to the null seckers. So I guess you can't win. You can't. <laughs> All right. Um, <clears throat> well, um, there are some other news out there, but we're going to move on because we want to maximize our time with CCP Siegel, who has just arrived. So we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Talking in Stations. After a brief break, we've made some technical adjustments, and we are happy to report that we have with us today the executive producer of EVE Online, CCP Siegel. How are you, CCP Siegel? I'm good. How are you guys? Are you still going by that name? Or can we, shall we start calling you Andy now? Hey, sorry. I have some double audio going on here from, hold on. Oh, yeah. Mute the stream. Well, she is in Iceland, and uh, we are in California, so these uh, long distances require some latency. Sorry about that. Now I can function again. <laughs> <laughs> that, that happened to me the first time. So, yeah, so you're still CCP Seagull. Uh, when are you departing uh, CCP? So I'm here until the end of June. And so I guess until that, I will be CCP Seagull until my last day. Will that be weird, not being called uh, Seagull anymore? A little bit. I think whenever I meet EVE players, that will be me for the rest of my life, probably. Yeah, it's kind of like um, a tattoo, isn't it? <laughs> like Some people always see you that way. Yeah, but I, I, I wear this with pride for sure. All right, well, we'll talk about where you're going, but first we want to talk about where you've been. And even before that, we want to like explore what the position actually is. So the first question is, what is the executive producer's role at CCP? Uh, my favorite question. Uh, it's funny because these, uh, these roles, of course, mean slightly different things in different companies. And, and so, depending on who I'm explaining to, I, I, I choose different versions. And if I need the simplest version, it, it means the executive producer is the boss of Eve Online, right? But then of course, the next question is, well, so what does that entail, right? What, what kind of work do you do? What exactly do you boss over and, and so on? And so in 
CCP, obviously CCP does more stuff than EVE Online, even though EVE Online is, is the biggest project. So I'm responsible for EVE Online inside CCP, which means that on a high level, there's a budget and there's targets for the project and there's very much a business level, but then there's also high level strategy of what are we, what are we actually doing? Where are we taking the game? Big questions such as, you know, should we take the game, you know, free to play? Should, should it be free to play Eve? Or, you know, what kind of features should we invest in? But then very rarely, you know, more low level design questions such as, you know, how many slots should this ship have and so on. Those are some of the most common misunderstandings is that I'm somehow involved in deciding how many high slots the hurricane should have. Right. Well, is there, so obviously you're not involved in the minutiae. And if I'm not mistaken, one of the things I heard you say or someone say about you was that uh, it used to, the executive producer seemed to be like a top-down position and you kind of in, re reversed that and became more of a facilitator of getting the teams what they needed rather than telling them what to do. Is that fair to say? I, I would say so. I mean, in any project like this, it's always a mix of those things. But I think that what I brought was more of a mindset to say that the work that happens the closest to the players, that's where we're making something of value. And you can view your leadership role as a servant position to those who are making the actual features. That doesn't mean you never decide something or that you are sort of a, a, a passive or neutral facilitator because facilitator can often have that, that kind of ring to it that you, you sort of bring nothing to the table. You're just trying to make people collaborate somehow. And, and I've had a lot of influence about on what, what we're doing on a high level, but with the mindset that my role as a leader is to make sure that those who who make EVE Online can do their work. And also to try to shift decisions closer to where the most knowledge is. That has been my, my general mindset for how to try to set up the development organization. And that has sometimes worked very well. And sometimes it has been, you know, a bit too radical for some people. And yeah, I think it's uh, it's been an interesting journey to try to apply that mindset. Well, and I'm, I'm glad you saw through that question to the, the other side of it was that, you know, how passive are you? Are you just, you know, making sure everybody has a budget or are you actually influencing the game over the last four years? Have you been putting uh, priorities, you know, setting priorities and even just strategizing where the game, what the game is and how it, how it should evolve? And so I'm glad you kind of cleared that up, that you do have influence uh, in that sort of a thing over the last four years. Yeah, lots and lots of influence. Like, like you said, it's more of the mindset for how you how you do it. I remember, I, I, well, before I get into my question, I remember that um, when when you first took over CCP Siegel and you first took on your name, CCP Siegel, uh, at the time, Gesture Trek was still a big uh, blogger. And he, he made sure to point out that, you know, the word Siegel, and especially when it comes to management, uh, means certain things, and it's good to see that here he was afraid that maybe you would have a more hands-off approach because of that, but it's good to see that uh, that is not the case. Where does the name come from, by the way? 
Well, I've, I always liked seagulls, the bird. Uh, my dad worked in, in uh, selling sailing equipment and we sailed quite a bit when I was a kid. So I liked seagulls from there, but then it's also the, the call sign for the first woman in space, Valentina Tereshkova. Nice. That being said, first of all, uh, thank you for agreeing to do this. And uh, it's always good to get an opportunity to talk to you. Um, so one of the things, at least publicly, that you're most known for is your vision, the vision speeches that you give basically at every single keynote since the beginning. You've updated us on this vision. It started as a two-year vision, and it's kind of slowly meandered its way towards being a four-year vision. Would you, how do you feel that that has gone? Do you, have you learned any lessons? Do you feel that you've been successful in implementing that vision? Well, I, I think that I've, I've, I've learned that everything takes longer than you, than you dream of when you set out uh, for a project like that. For me, the, the sort of coherency and sense to that vision still holds, but then when you have a live game, you just have to make decisions where you can't just make your original plan as you had intended. And of course, there was some naivete also to the timeline uh, of, of that plan. So if I if I would go back to a sort of younger CCP Seagull, I would kind of knock myself on the shoulder and say like, yeah, that's not a two-year plan. That's completely ridiculous. But I still believe we actually got very far into that plan so far. And, and I think that it's very, very exciting to see now. I mean, we're dealing with some of the legacy of EVE Online, right? And we set out on this crazy mission to actually go and replace Starbases and all the old structures with something better. And, and that we're actually ending the kind of end of that roadmap now, which was always the the idea to make this massive upgrade to what you can build in space and how you can colonize space and be able to hand this over into player hands in a much more ambitious capacity. And we knew that if we were wanted to do that, I mean, we've been on that mission for quite a few years with Eve is that, you know, everything should be player run more or less, right? If we can make players do it, you know, we should. Why should an NPC make this item? Well, no good answer, really. Let's have players make it, right? And same with the structures. If we want players to operate the infrastructure of New Eden, then it can't suck <laughs> as badly as the just overall user experience did with uh, player on star bases and a lot of the other structure and you know reactions and even industry. I mean, that's why we also started with industry. I mean, this is now such a long time ago that people I think forget what industry used to look like. And uh, <laughs> Yeah, and we knew that if you know if we want players to make everything, that has to be a way better experience. So we really try to go over a lot of these systems like that, and then we have gotten to some of it, and we haven't gotten to other parts of it. But I think that if if we look at the state of the player features available for building infrastructure and colonizing space before and after, so to speak, there's been a, a huge transformation that we're almost done with that I'm extremely proud of, even if we haven't gotten to everything yet. Well, so the bait at the end of your vision has always been new space and stargates. Uh, we are now getting the abyss, which I must confess was nowhere near the new space that I thought that you were referencing when you referenced it all of those times. Was that the original intent? Was this, was this what you meant when you said new space or is there more 
that you kind of were implying? I mean, these ideas, of course, evolve internally, and and I I think it's a uh, it's wrong to think that there was some perfect view from the beginning of what that new space would be. It was always something that we wanted to develop towards in here internally, where we wanted to build up our capabilities of doing cooler things that started all the way back with the with the seekers and the improved AI and, and so on and so forth. And we've really been doing a lot of work behind the scenes to kind of upgrade our toolbox to get to a place where we felt we could deliver a new new space worthy of the name, if you will, which is something I, I was kind of saying already at the beginning there. And I think there are kind of two tracks that we are on now is to build on the structure side, on the infrastructure side, we're building towards being in a place where we can actually let players build, build stargates, both to mess with existing infrastructure in the game in a feasible way, which is easier said than done. This is not something you snap your fingers and just put in the game, right? We've had this vision back in the day, you know, that everything should be destructible, right? You should be able to build everything. And if you can build it, you should be able to destroy it. And now think of a simple way to do that with existing Stargates, right? It's easy to think about, and it's not so easy to just, uh, you know, make as a f actually functioning design that adds something to the game. So while we can kind of think that, that like, ah, oh, that would be cool, you know, it's somewhere where we want to get eventually, but it has to be done with uh, some serious, not just caution, but, you know, like, yeah, it's, there's not like there's no design, you know, in a drawer somewhere here where we know exactly how we would do that. We're just waiting to get there. It's uh, really not like that. But so that's the kind of one track. And then the other track is it's really that, you know, abyssal dead space is for sure a taster of of what we're looking to do in the in the future. And I think that's all I'll I'll, I'll say about that. Thank you. Nice. We told our uh, listeners earlier in the week that you were going to be our guest today, and we collected a few questions from them. And I'm going to pass along uh, one of those questions first. This comes from Minxie of Signal Cartel. Love her. What is your uh, most memorable moment of your time with CCP? Oh, wow, that's a big question. It's, uh, it's been eight years, so there are quite, uh, quite a few moments. Um, I think that certainly the, the first time I walked on stage in Harpa with that vision that we were just talking about, that, that was a, that was a moment. <laughs> and I think that even though everyone could tell that I was pretty nervous and I was pretty young as a, as a public speaker of, of that scale, then I I felt like people heard something that they thought was exciting and that they thought that maybe I could be allowed near their game. <laughs> so that was a moment for sure. And then I think that some of the behind the scenes stuff as well around when we launched uh, Clone States, that's one of these things that was obviously like a huge process internally before players got, got to got to see those plans and we knew we thought we had come up with a way to do this that had pretty much only good things and 
not really any bad things with it, but we also were worried and knew that if we if we communicate in this in the wrong way, this this could go very, very wrong. And and so we had some, you know, high high stakes secrecy going on. Uh, we were actually pulling through a fan fest and a CSM summit, I think, while working on this or while we had decided to to take this route. And and uh, actually, nothing leaked, <laughs> nothing came out. People heard about it the first time when it was actually announced, and and then that it actually that people understood what we were trying to do and for the most part did not freak out. And, and that was certainly a moment for me because I put more or less my heart and soul into trying to really make this uh, go well. That, um, that brings up an interesting point. Did you have a follow-up, Carneros? No, Ashtoreth, you did. Oh. oh. I was going to say that, you know, uh, I remember that speech that you were talking about and um, you have obviously grown as a public speaker incredibly since then. Uh, and it's been great to see. At the same time, you also like one of the biggest things that you, CCP has done or Eve has done under your leadership is kind of change the way that the player base thinks about specific things like industry, like mining and all that stuff. Um, how do you feel, you know, we got to watch you grow up and evolve. How do you feel that the EVE community has grown up and evolved during that same time? I think I would say that when I, when I started at CGP and for a couple of the first years, I think the community before I, I, I took on more of a leading role on EVE Online and, and kind of early during the, the first years there, I think there was much more kind of hostility from established players towards new players and this big kind of fear that CCP would turn the game into something only for new players or, or that uh, somehow it was like a strange elitist stand that at the same time took the game for granted and uh, you know, wanted to kind of, you know, keep the plebs away or like some such kind of mindset. And I feel like that is one of the biggest shifts that I have felt in the community is this, uh, I don't know how to, how to express it really, but more of an appreciation for the game and that it exists and more of a joy to bring others into it and show it to other people instead of kind of a more elitist stance of saying this is the this is the hardcore game for hardcore people and if you if you can't handle it you know fuck off <laughs> uh, this this is a big change that i i've experienced i said something earlier about uh wanting things to go well and i think it's very important that to, to note how many things you ushered in that players said they didn't want and you were able to do it what are you thinking about then specifically? So many. Um, well, like alpha states and skill injectors. And I mean, like there's been a lot of major changes that have seen a lot of resistance, but once introduced, I think has actually been pretty successful. I mean, the way we've approached that internally is that, I mean, we, it's kind of two things, right? It has to be a solution that is really made for email line and doesn't just kind of copy paste what some other game is doing. 
because EVE Online, especially because of the player-driven market, is, is quite different and not comparable to many other game experiences. We can still learn from what other games are doing, but there is some kind of translation that has to happen. And so whenever we have tried to, to do something that we think is, is good for the game, we make sure that we really adapt it to what EVE is and what EVE needs. And then the other part is that we, are, we make sure that we we have really solid ground to stand on, like design-wise. We really hammer on it internally. And, and kind of we know that we have a place from which we are really willing to defend it, like the core of the design, like in skill trading, right? It's like we we knew that this mapped to how EVE Online works and that letting players basically extract and trade this asset fit into how things work in EVE Online and that this was the way to do this, which basically resolves things for, for two sides of the equation, just like Plex does. You basically have a setup where you have two happy players who are willing to trade something between themselves. And if it's like that, CCP takes a little cut on that trade. Right, and this is a model that works in email line. And once we we had that kind of design, we knew we could stand our ground, even though there would be sort of opinion and turmoil around it. And and that's how we've done all of these major changes. Is that the the core of the design, the core of the strategy we're taking, is something that we really truly believe in, and then we're ready to kind of defend it, especially against people who are like, "Oh, it's a slippery slope." You know, next skill injectors will be sold in the new Eden store, and we're like, "Nope." And same with the daily skill injectors, for example. It's like, "Oh, they're selling skill points now." It's like, well. Technically, that's a technical implementation because it was hardcore complicated to sell skill training only. But no, we're not. Like the time limit makes it a training speed, not uh, an injector. Radical difference between being able to inject as much as you like straight out of the new Eden store versus training a little bit every day even though the, the sort of core implementation happens to be an injector, right? So once we know the sort of, sort of ideological foundation of something like this, we're just like ready to stand up for it, but also communicate it in a way where I've done a lot of this thinking and work to try to really get across to players what's going on, come out with it in a completely honest fashion, try to give people, not tell them up front whether it's good or bad, but try to just say, this is what it is, make your own decision about what you think, you know, whether it's good or not. We believe it holds up and that's why we're willing to not try to basically sell something to you in, in a way that, that's artificial or we're trying to strong arm you into somehow agreeing with something that you don't actually agree with. And that's how I've worked with the CSM always as well. It's like, we're not trying to sell you something, like you don't have to agree with us if people on the CSM, we explain something to them and they still don't agree, it's like, just, you know, go and tell the players that you don't agree. <laughs> anyway. As, before you even would have gotten to the point of telling the players this, you would have worked a little bit earlier with the CSM. And uh, I'm gonna pass along a question from the audience. This time it's from Jim Todd of Test Alliance, please ignore. How did the CSM change during your tenure as EP of EVE Online? 
Um, I think it's always hard to talk about the CSM. There are some ways we can talk about the CSM as a, as a unit, but it's something that I've also told a lot of CSMs is that you are actually elected as individuals. And while, of course, some of the behavior affects how CCP works with the CSM as a group, uh, the CSM doesn't have to agree internally to be effective, for example. And, and I think that there was a couple of rounds of CSM where there was a lot of drama because people tried to, they tried to make, have one opinion come out of the CSM. And, and that caused a lot of weird politics because, uh, yeah, the idea was somehow that, that for the CSM to be effective with CCP, they needed to stand united somehow. And, and I think that, that that's something that has, has changed with the last couple of CSMs. And that has both to do with, I think, the people who are on there, but also with how we run it internally, which is, has changed you know, over, the, over the years and how, how well we frankly have managed to make people feel like they can have a voice and, and are able to impact things. I think that matters a lot as well. I think maybe during the years where people felt they had to sort of unite and, and scream basically, it was is partly because the way we had things set up was maybe not optimal either. So how we treat it matters a lot, I think, for how CSM functions. I think that also speaks a lot to that cultural shift that you were talking about before. I think that prior to your um, you know, tenure, there was definitely this idea that if CCP messed something up, it would be left messed up. And so there was a lot of like anxiety about every single step of the way being done right, if that makes sense. Um, because if CCP didn't have their eye on the ball, we got things like Incarna, which, as I said, made a lot of nervousness. Well, if I could well, add to a couple things that uh, people were nervous about were the Plex changes. That was a very big change, uh, changing it from one to 500. And uh, then there were overviews that people seemed to like quit the game over. Uh, and, and I think that actually lent a lot to scale because you could see the little body floating in space and now you could see how big your ship was next to it. And it just all of a sudden we had scale. Um, these are things that people were like terrified of and you seem to usher everybody through all these valleys uh, and you know and here we still are uh, and i think the game is probably in as best shape as it's ever been thank you very much for doing that we're we're focusing a lot on the uh challenges but i i want to uh, read from lothar mandrake in twitch chat who says i started even may 2016 you were the first face of ccp i saw uh, and your interactions with us helped me keep playing at times you gave me hope when Eve, uh, when everyone else was talking doom and gloom, you will be missed as Eve's premier optimist. And I think that that's a big thing that you did was that you brought a certain amount of hope and trust in uh, to CCP at a very key time. Uh, that's my favorite accomplishment of yours. What is your favorite accomplishment uh, as executive producer? Um, well, thank you for some of those words and to the chat as well. But yeah, I, I think it's maybe something along those lines. I, I always had and still have an enormous optimism for what Eve is and, and what it can be. And, and I think that regardless of, of where, 
how many years it's going to take us to deliver on some of the vision and, and so on that has been a really important thing for me to try to bring is this sense uh, that no way are we somehow giving up on EVE Online, right? Because you have this EVE is dying meme where EVE is always dying for some reason or another, right? And and uh, some kind of fear that CCP somehow would have like even maintenance mode or whatever as VR or some other projects kind of took off. And I, I've, I have taken that, that role a little bit also because I have deep like personal belief in it is to really get that across that is just nowhere on the table even that we would somehow like abandon Eve right that no one should should think that that's a relevant thought to have in their head and and i think that 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 trust has come over the years as this kind of gets repeated this type of mindset is just shining through what what we're doing i i think that people have that is one of these changes maybe in the community that people have slowly stopped fearing that we're gonna either completely mess things up or abandon Eve somehow. And people still, of course, think we mess things up on a more detail level, but these discussions have kind of moved from entirety of Eve Online to this particular feature here, you know? Right. Yeah, the, the, you're actually a contradiction in many ways because uh, first of all, if you look at the first years of Eve Online, there's this really there's a lot of pride and like we're going bigger and the uh, expansions are bigger and uh, better and you know nobody's doing the kind of stuff we're doing and it was like it seemed very viking you know because from iceland i guess that's how we took it and then oops you know they fell into the ice uh, they fell into the, they fell through the ice and there was a big cold shower and it's like oh we've got to fix all these things and john lander came and did a series of fixing um but it still had that overtone to it. And then here comes you and you're very like humble and uh, just, you're not a, a huge personality and you slowly go about your work. Um, you know, and so is there, was there like, there's just a whole different culture shift. All of a sudden you're the, the feeling that CCP was listening started to happen, especially from behind the scenes, I think. So, you just seem to like, oh, and also you're female and the guys that were in charge of all this were male before. So you're a different type of face and you just, you broke at least three or four different uh, molds when you came aboard uh, and stuff. And so your legacy seems to be pretty exclusive to you in that uh, you were like the least likely and the most capable at the same time. I think that's very interesting. Just looking at it from a perspective of being a player for many years to see like that happen was, um, you know, withstanding all the pressure, not the community, but also I'm sure the company and, and the culture and whatever. But uh, I think Asherathi, uh, not Asherathi, Asher is still with us and he has a question for you about Iceland, right? Oh yeah, I was just curious because um, you know I've heard a lot of a lot of Americans talk about you know I, I moved to Iceland to work for CCP and this was the changes. Uh, you came from a Scandinavian country. Was it uh, a culture shock? Was it a lot different? Or, or did you kind of slot right in? I'm kind of curious about that. Um, I, I know a lot of people in, in all the Nordic countries uh, due to my LARP 
pastime where we have a conference that's in that kind of alternates between the Nordic countries. So from seeing kind of all of them, I, I usually tell people that it's it's about 80% the same. Like there's a foundation of sort of social welfare and, and Nordic-based culture that is very similar. But then each country has, you know, 20% or so that is distinctly different for each Nordic country. And, and that makes them very, you know, still unique places. So, I mean, Iceland is very similar in, in many ways and it's very easy to to fit in here as a as a Nordic citizen overall, but then with the nature, with the isolation, with a lot of stuff that comes from that in the culture as well, it is quite different. And I'm I'm actually quite curious how it's going to be when I move back to Sweden now, because I think I've become quite Icelandic while <laughs> while I've been living here. So we'll see how how it goes with uh, encountering Sweden again. That is uh, quite more structured than this place in many ways. Bringing this back to what we were just talking about a little bit when it came to kind of the cultural shifts and the relationship between CCP and um, the player base, one of the comments that we were talking about uh, or that I've been seeing in the stream chat is talking about customer-focused versus company-focused philosophy. And one of the big things that you are well-known for outside of CCP that a lot of people might not know is uh, design by participation, big advocate for this philosophy. And you really brought that to um, the Eve, like, or CCP's culture. Why don't you briefly describe what that means um, and, and what sort of effect that has had on the way that CCP builds Eve Online? Oh, that's a small topic. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I would say that, I mean, first it's interesting to make a distinction between uh, there's what a lot of people call participation design or which is basically where you kind of partner with your customers to make something where you involve players in the design work on something, for example. And we, of course, have aspects of that going for Eve Online as well with the CSM and with, you know, just uh, feedback back and forth with the community. But the thing that I'm usually speaking about in other contexts and so on is what I call design for participation, which is something that, that you can, it's more of a design perspective and it's not something you have to involve your, your customers or players in actually at all, but it's recognizing that you're really, uh, you're really designing something for having players interact with each other. And there's a lot of product design mindset, which is, breaking down different user personas and different types of players or whatever, but the focus is very much on how are those people using the game or the product? How are they playing, right? So you might have, you know, some features for a certain type of player and some other features for another type of player. And designing for participation is to kind of shift even one more step is to say, what are these players going to do with each other? and really start your design focus there. So with that kind of mindset, we've started both naming and defining some of these roles that you hear us talk about sometimes, like enablers and instigators, for example, and to say that for something big to happen, someone needs to take the initiative. And you can map this to other communities, you know, whether it's Discord or, or Reddit or even online, someone decides I'm gonna run a corporation or I'm gonna start a subreddit about something, or I'm gonna run this, this Discord over something in particular. And they take that initiative 
and they need a certain certain tool set. And then you have people on different levels who might join something that already exists, or you might become a facilitator to something that already exists. And just naming and realizing that these roles exist and that players can kind of just work directly with each other, solving these things together, that's the a design perspective that just gives you a slightly different different like approach. So examples of how you can change your thinking here and it's not to prove that this is always a perfect thing or whatever but if you look at the overview in email line right it's a pretty complex beast as a as a feature it's and all the settings you can make for it and it's it's a bit of a you know there's something steep there to get into and then a more traditional design mindset you might say okay, we have to fix the user experience here. The game has to be uh, smarter and smoother about this. Setting up the overview has to be way easier. And you know maybe we should even simplify the overview and maybe there should be less stuff on it because if there's so much stuff, it can never be made easier. So we must like radically simplify this. And there may come a day for that, right? But with a participation design mindset, you rather go, okay, what if we have players help each other with this? Someone will take the initiative to set up a good overview. And if they can just share that work with other people in a really easy way, then one person could take the initiative to solve this problem for hundreds of people, even thousands of people. And you can do it in, in relation to exactly your needs. You can make an overview that's just for your group. Right. And this is a completely different angle to solving things than thinking that it's always the game or the software that has to solve everything for people. So you get a different kind of viewport on, on some of these issues. And same with, of course, when we're designing for, you know, player built infrastructure, then it's all about, you know, why is someone going to want to build a citadel? Like, why are they doing that? What are their incentives for it? And how are people going to join them? How can people help them? And so on and so forth. So that's, that's the kind of perspective that this kind of thinking brings. So one thing I find very interesting is that you came aboard CCP uh, eight years ago, I think, and you came aboard uh, to work on the carbon engine with John Landers, if I'm not mistaken. And you two worked on that engine, which was a uh, state of the art at the time. And now you're going to work at Unity, which also does engines and so i wanted to know this is a little bit out there but in eve online are the people the engine that you have to tune like is is there any uh, parallels there about how to construct something with a tool i think there are parallels but not like that uh, it's more about i mean there are a lot of tools in eve online where we make things so that players can then make things that they want to make and in Evil Nine, it's a space empire or a corporation and so on, but we make tools so that you guys can do stuff that you want to do. Of course, in Eve, the frame for what you can do is much more narrow than with a full-blown game engine like, like Unity, because there are people you know, can make a way broader spectrum of, of things from movies to games to, to whatever. So it's a it's a wider platform, if you will, but in many ways, the, the, the mindset is the same and why I always loved working on email line and why the step is maybe not so far from, from engine to, to Eve, because I think of it a lot as a, as a platform for people to, 
to do and make things that they care about. Paris? Jury's doctor of Iron Armada asks, what, um, is there something that you wish you could have accomplished before you left? Is there, is there one thing that you wish you could have gotten around to? Well, I, I you know, the, the sort of player build Stargates for sure. Nice. I'll sneak so, one more in. This is, a, this is a crazy name. Hayton on Gloria Pharaoh asks, what is your biggest piece of advice for your replacement? Um, tough question. For those that can't see, he's got a big smile. <laughs> um, I think to, to just keep trusting in the madness of Eve Online is to, to trust and embrace what's unique about the game rather than feeling like it's, it's broken because it's different. Do you think you'll play Eve um, after you uh, step down at the end of June? I think so. Uh, maybe not right away, because there is a bit of a break maybe needed. Uh, and also because, I mean, I, I would like to play Eve really as a civilian. And I think that if I start playing too soon after uh, leaving, that's going to be weird or impossible. People still recognize my voice and, and so on and so forth. And so I think it needs like a, you know, a year or maybe two before I can actually play online as it was intended to be played without that being a, a completely weird thing. Just run from the CSM, you'll be fine. You've seen the inside of the sausage factory. A quick comment, though, when I left, I, I, I started to play differently and it felt different. It definitely did. Well, uh, we're wrapping up the show now. Uh, for those of you that are lucky enough to be in Discord for Talking In Stations, um, we'll be able to uh, say hi to Andy before she takes off. She'll be in for just a few minutes. Um, and do we have any final questions? I, I just wanted to ask, um, so obviously EVE Online is a very unique thing in, in the gaming sphere. Um, it really does a lot of things that a lot of other game companies don't do or can't do or too scared to do or whatever. What do you think that you're going to bring at, now that you're from CCP coming to Unity, which is, gonna, is hugely influential, influential because you know, so many games are built in Unity. Um, is there anything that you're gonna bring with you from CCP to kind of help make better games in general? I, I don't know yet. I, I think I will have to see the inside of Unity before I, I, I mean, I will of course carry the entirety of my experience with Evil Line and CCP with me at, at all times, but I, I have to see the inside of Unity before I, I understand if, I, if there is some aspect like that that will actually be, be possible to have, have some meaningful outlet. I have uh, one last question that I didn't get in here for uh, Caleb, who wanted to know about the, there used to be a plan that you would unify like the various games around EVE Online, I think it was called to um, Total EVE or something like that, uh, or Complete EVE. And I was, he was wondering like what about that old roadmap, the roadmap before you came in and said, here's the roadmap where we're gonna change things and solve and, and corporations and other things. 
before that there was that other roadmap. Is that one just completely gone? I mean, I think you can pretty safely assume that that whatever communications there have been uh, throughout the years, if, if things haven't been talked about actively for the last, you know, two or three years, uh, they are just, you know, final, like done. I, no, I mean, exactly. Some of those things are, are, you know, and, you know, the modular POS concept as it was back then, you know, like, I mean, we, we have moved on from a lot of these things and also really try to change how we communicate in terms of putting less concepts and ideas out there and just presenting stuff that is mature enough that you can trust that it's actually coming to the game in some shape or form, right? I mean, we still sometimes, even though we have been extremely explicit that, that we are not working on uh, avatar gameplay for even online, there, you know, we still get the question. So that is Every now right? and then, right? Yeah. Oh, well, there'll be no uh, walking in stations, but there still is talking in stations, so that's okay with us now. We'll be the avatars in real life. Um, all right, so uh, once more, Carneros, did you have anything else? Thank you very much. It's been, it's been a great pleasure. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, thanks. Uh, sorry, go ahead. Having me on the show for a little chat, it's uh, interesting to reflect a bit on the time as an executive producer. Yeah, well, it's uh, and this is interesting to me when I look at, uh, I always like to look at you guys, CCP, to see a reflection of us in the hopes and dreams that we put on you, because I think there's so much investment in the game over time. Um, from I, I've just, I come across people who've been around a long time, and you can see they're, they've been around a long time, they've done a lot of things, they're kind of cynical. Some of them are super happy, and they just go about their game and their business, and they're totally fine. Others um, are newer, but you can see the fire in them to absorb as much knowledge as possible. Like they're who I was eight years ago. Uh, they're reading everything. They're thanking us for doing this show and introducing people like you to them. And there's a lot of like um, ambition there. There's a ton of ambition going on with people like that. So it's neat to see like, for us to look at you and say like, wow, all that responsibility that you have, that one word that you say can just wreck somebody's investment uh, in the game because you said, yeah, we're going to introduce Plex or we're going to introduce uh, icons that look a little bit different and they just explode because so much, they put so much into it and now it's going to change. And so their advantage might go away and just, that's a ton of pressure, isn't it? To to like not upset people, but at the same time, move the game forward for other people? It's a bit of a tightrope to walk for sure. Uh, but yeah, I, I always took that very seriously. I, I mean, people's investment in the game, I, I've always had an enormous amount of, of respect for it and kind of refused to take ideas such as like, oh, people just don't like change. So you just have to steamroll them somehow. Like that's something that people say sometimes. And I, I, I just like, people are always coming from somewhere and they have legitimate concerns and it doesn't mean you always do what people, people ask for, but people have at least, uh, you know, should be given the respect to be, to be heard and what their concerns are and, and why. And, because it comes from this level of deep investment in the game. And I have a huge amount of respect for that and always had. Yeah. And, and, and that's, so that begs the next question, which is where is the game going? 
<laughs> give us some inside scoops here on is that roadmap still intact that you put into play? Are we still along that path? Does the it, are you even going to have a replacement? Is there going to be another? These maybe are questions you can't answer, but there was a strategy team that I think you put together or had some hand in putting together. So it wasn't just your vision. It was a, a, a commit, like a few people that were together. together. Yeah, I mean, just like, I mean, that's what we were saying at FanFest, basically, that these, that what we presented there was really the, the future focus. And that is a plan that's owned by way more people than me, so. I, I don't have any any reveals or comments beyond that. You want to give a reveal on your way out. Okay. Go ahead, Asher. Um, so you've hired people, you've hired players who've played the game, and I don't know if you do hiring in particular, but you've you've worked with people who came to CCP after playing EVE, and then you've worked with people who have never played EVE and then were hired. Have you noticed uh, a difference in, in getting them running? Do the people who played EVE, do they hit the ground running better? Or maybe do their conceptions as a player not mesh as well uh, as those as you know a developer of the game uh, it really differs from person to person i don't think there's a theme there or i haven't noticed one at least obviously when people know the game there are certain things you ramp up on way faster but but that's more i think when it comes to the actual craft of working on the game it depends on what your role is and how what the project is well uh Andy or CCP Siegel, I want to thank you for making some time with us. Uh, we know you have a young family that you need to get back to. Um, I want to also um, say thanks for the many years, like it's not just the four years that you were executive producer, but you did four years before that, um, heavily involved in EVE. Um, at, at a pretty high level, I think the two years before that too, you were, uh, what was the position, lead game designer of some sort? Senior producer for a while there, yeah. Yeah, senior producer. I think that's when we started seeing you on stage uh, and giving us the vision. But I want to remind people how much has happened in eight years of EVE Online, especially the last six. Uh, you had the warp tunnels. Um, you had the scanning change, which made a huge visible difference when you play the game to uh, the Plex changes to injectors, to alphas, uh, taking us through, I think, a lot of things that we were scared of or fighting against because we didn't understand how it could adapt to the game and mutate to actually fit EVE Online. I think there's still a lot of those feelings going around that uh, the game is starting to take on characteristics that it never had before, and yet we have a, a track record of being able to, to take those changes and adapt them to the way we play the game. And a lot of that was ushered in by CCP Siegel, took on some of the harder ones uh, and helped us through those. So thanks very much for the last years uh, that you've been around with EVE Online and thanks very much for coming on this today's show. Thanks a lot. Thanks guys very much. We will wrap it up for this week and see you next week on Talking In Stations.